Trigger warning. This podcast discusses themes centered around emotional, physical, and sexual violence. While the stories of the survivors are meant to be inspiring and informative, listener discretion is advised. If you are struggling with any of the aforementioned issues, links to resources can be found in the show notes of today's episode. Uh, So unbeknownst to me, there was a man named Jeffrey who had probably been watching me for several years, we think since around 2008, 2009, but really first appeared in my life at the end of 2011. Uh, He approached my gallery one evening when I was working on a, like a window display and introduced himself and said that he wanted to show artwork at my gallery and gave me the gift of a painting. And none of this was really that out of the ordinary. I got a bad read from him, honestly, like, you know, as we do when we've experienced and survived multiple forms of trauma. Oftentimes people think we're overreacting, but really as one of my friends said, I think all of the other things you've experienced probably saved your life. Hi, Survivors. I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. Yay, another episode. Another episode and and really, Tara, an important episode, right? I would say it's National Stalking Awareness Day today. Oh, yes. National Stalking Awareness Month, actually. Yes. January 2024 marks the 20th annual National Stalking Awareness Month an annual call to action to recognize and respond to the serious crime of stalking. Yesterday, Anna joined fellow stalking survivor activist and friend of the show, Lenora Clare in Washington, D.C., to speak to the White House about raising awareness for stalking. They were joined by Devry Riddle, whose sister Peggy was brutally murdered by her stalker on January 18, 2003. Too often, the issue of stalking fades into the background, Not today. Join us to raise awareness for this prevalent and traumatic crime. We would like to encourage you to post a photo of you and or your team sparkling against stalking. Use the hashtag sparkleagainststalking on your social media posts and we will have links to more on this important day in the show notes of today's episode. Yes, but you know what, Tara, we forgot to do is we forgot to introduce our guest first. Our guest is on an asset who is a just a, a total badass. And actually, Anna has secured the longest sentence in United States history for someone being convicted of the crime of stalking, which was 10 years. Her stalker was put in prison. Stalker Jeffrey, as she refers to him as, that's not his real name. And he was sentenced in 2019 to a sentence of 10 years for stalking, which is unheard of, which is also kind of unfathomable to me that, you know, Obviously, friend of the show, Lenora Claire, has brought a lot of awareness to this subject to, I know you, but also to me, I've just been floored at the lack of action in law enforcement and the lack of action in the courts dealing with this because it is so, it is such an important issue. And Lenora says it best, and it's one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever heard anyone say, but she says that stalking is murder in slow motion. And I couldn't agree more. And I've dealt with stalkers. I know that you have a long history. You know, you dealt with this with John, right? Yeah, no. And I think we have one currently, probably. (laughs) (laughs) If we're being real and like we laugh about it, but like (laughs) now we're just in the public eye. So 
it comes with the territory at moments. Sure. Yeah. And it's just, it's something that's very serious that, uh, that law enforcement is, you know, obviously they're not trying to turn a blind eye to it, but it's just such a complex thing. And, you know, last year there was a landmark Supreme Court decision, which really affected a lot of people, which, um, you know, there was this uh, woman, and I cannot remember her name to save my life, but she was in Colorado and she was a singer songwriter and she had to start hiring, you know, uh, private security for her events for her, you know, singer songwriter gigs that she was going out to like bars and like, you know, she's not Taylor Swift. She doesn't have bajillions of dollars to do this. And the Supreme Court found for, uh, found for the person who was convicted of the crime of stalking against her. And, um, you know, it's something that is just, it's really prevalent. We have a lot of people who have been on this show who have been stalked and it's just something to really raise awareness. But I really feel like Anna's story is one of hope and resilience and showing that you too can combat this, you know, this horrific crime. No, absolutely. And I'm so proud of everything she's doing, everything she's fighting for. There's a great team in Washington, D.C. right now, and they're fighting for the stalking laws. They are. They are. So what do you say we get into the episode? Yes, let's get into it. Anna Nasset, welcome to the program. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you come to us? Yeah, so thanks so much for having me here. Um, I'm excited to be here today, joining you from the brave little state of Vermont. Uh, I live in, at the end of a dirt road, up a dirt road that you have to go over a one-lane covered bridge to get to, and am somehow also the person in our country whose stalker has the longest sentence in our country's history. So which is pretty wild when I really think about it that way of just like the quiet little simple life I live and being able to have that sentencing and the freedom I get to have because of that. Really just try and use my voice to not be the exception because I got this exceptional sentence and start to create a standard for what everybody deserves, which is to be able to walk freely in this world and to create a deeper understanding of stalking. So that's the real quick version of what I am up to, and so I travel all over the country and internationally as well, training law enforcement advocates, uh, military prosecutors, college campuses on how to be aware of the crime of stalking and also how to respond to stalking as well as other forms of gender-based violence um, because not only am I a survivor and victim of stalking, I'm also a survivor of multiple forms of gender-based violence throughout the course of my lifetime as so many people are. And so just really work to educate folks and do that work. I do a lot of work here in the state of Vermont with different agencies. And as we'll talk about later on, I just wrote a book that came out today. So it's my publication day, which is very exciting to get to spend it with you all. And I got to see uh, my advocate earlier today and have a little celebration with her and some other folks in my community. And we'll continue that into the evening afterwards with a little dinner on the river, which is the perfect way to celebrate. Sounds fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah, Thank congrats. You. Now, I have so many questions 
And I hope you don't mind me asking, but how did your stalker come to be your stalker? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, I live in Vermont now, but I was living in Washington State in a small town of Port Townsend, Washington. And I owned an art gallery there, which had been like my dream in life. I went to school for art. My dream in life was to own an art gallery because I just love being able to help people create work and showcase it and sell it and then educate others about art. And so I was living my best life. Uh, I bought the art gallery with no money in my bank account. I wrote a damn good business plan and got a private investor. And so it was just like, this is my time to shine. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Uh, And unbeknownst to me, there was a man who I'm going to call Jeffrey for the sake of this conversation. I don't like to use his real name. Uh, So unbeknownst to me, there was a man named Jeffrey who had probably been watching me for several years, we think since around 2008, 2009, but really first appeared in my life at the end of 2011. Uh, He approached my gallery one evening when I was working on a like a window display and introduced himself and said that he wanted to show artwork at my gallery and gave me the gift of a painting. And none of this was really that out of the ordinary. I got a bad read from him, honestly, like, you know, as we do when we've experienced and survived multiple forms of trauma, oftentimes people think we're overreacting. But really, as one of my friends said, I think all of the other things you've experienced probably saved your life. And I think a lot of us can identify with that, to be honest. So he started to email me and I rejected showing his artwork. Not a big thing. But then he began to send me messages through Facebook. And we were not friends. We've never been friends on Facebook. But it's easy enough to send a message, right? And so those messages started to, they were kind of chaotic in nature. And so my spidey sense was like, "Mm, I think something might not be okay here. And as these messages continued to come in, they would say things like, it was nice to see you today. And I'm like, I don't know this person and I didn't see them today. What is going on? And so within that, I pretty quickly kind of mentioned things to a couple of people I knew when I was dating a guy at the time. He's like, oh, you're overreacting. You're overreacting. But in my gut, I just knew something wasn't right. So pretty quickly, I would Google the name of Jeffrey, his full name, And see different court reports and things of that nature come out and that he had threatened to harm people at a mental health facility. And I immediately knew I was like, oh, shit, like there's something bigger happening here. And luckily, you know, I'm in a very small rural community. I owned a successful business, so I had a position of power in my community. Right. And I knew different people. And so I was able to quickly call somebody who knew a lot of people within law enforcement and they knew who Jeffrey was. And they're like, you need to go to the police right now. And so I did. And the police knew who he was as well, because he had a history of stalking people for short spurts of time. And, you know, I think that's something that's really significant with the crime of stalking is if anything had been different, right? If we were the same gender, if we had dated, if they didn't know who he was, if I, you know, was a different race or a different age, If I didn't have this business where I was already known, I don't know that I'd be here today. But because I had all of those things, it's hard to say like I was lucky because there's nothing lucky in a situation like this. Yet I can also understand and acknowledge my own privilege too. So police got involved and we hoped that, you know, as they got involved, he would stop messaging me, stop his surveilling of me. 
we never will really know quite the full scope of what was done. Um, but he did not. And so amazingly, he actually was arrested in January of 2012 and eventually would be would plead guilty to the misdemeanor of harassment of me and serve a year in jail. And I really thought, OK, great, we're done here. I've shown him. Look at me like we've got this. But no. Um, so once he was released from jail, he wouldn't directly message me. And I think this is something that so many stalkers will do is they they figure out how to get that work around from the systems because I had that protection order. Right. So he would write lots of letters and send them to law enforcement and prosecutors and people I know. And he would write very threatening things. But once again, he knows how to work within the system. So even though he would write these very threatening and graphic things about all the ways I should die and this and that, he wouldn't come out and quite say, I'm going to kill her by these means. Just she should be killed by these means. And so it was very nuanced as to how law enforcement could really respond to that. And I just, you know, did the best I could. But as we know, um, Tara and I share a good friend, Lenora, in common, who has a shockingly similar story. I'm sure you're figuring out as we go along when Lenore and I first met, we're like, what in the world? But uh, the last place you want to be is where the stalker knows you are. So I was closing my business all the time or I wasn't present when I was there. And this is so similar, as we know, for people who are experiencing domestic violence as well, is we're not going to be present. We can't sell things. We can't do our job. We're going to miss work. And all of that really compounded over time. And I eventually had to face the facts and close my business towards the end of 2013. And that was devastating. You know, that was my life dream. I thought, you know, if you asked me then, like, I would still be at that gallery every day opening it up. But, you know, life changes. And so I stuck around my community for a couple of years and... Once again, like he, you know, he'd just walk that fine line all the time of, you know, maybe I'd see him someplace and maybe he would leave because I have that protection order, but where would he go? Or sometimes he just wouldn't leave at all. And it became very nuanced because he believed that anytime I got law enforcement or the criminal justice system involved, that that was a sign of my love for him. So really complex then to make choices. Yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah. So really complex to make choices when you're dealing with that of like, what do I do? Like, we're both in the grocery store. He's not leaving. But what happens if I call the cops? So I just, you know, as many people do, change the routine, change the routine, change the routine. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey, Tara, as you know, I've been going back to therapy and I absolutely love it. You've been going back to therapy too, right? Oh, yeah. I went back to therapy and I went back to BetterHelp as well. Did you really? And how's that working out for you? I love it because there's so many therapists to choose from on there. Whatever you need, you could just go through a list. I went through a list the other day, just seeing what they had to offer. There was one with PTSD. There's so many great therapists. I mean, I believe there's over 30,000 different therapists that are on their app and you can communicate with them with video conferencing. You can do messages and communicate with your therapist. It's a very personalized experience, which I really love. Oh, yes. I texted with a therapist the other day and I'm 
never tried that out before. And I was like, oh, because I was typing it out with her, processing through it. And usually I get angry when I type stuff out. But I was like, oh, I was able to process it and work through it in a new way. And you know what? In a season of giving, what better gift than to give yourself the gift of therapy? In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Survivor today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Survivor. And eventually I had some time away from Port Townsend. Um, after I closed my gallery, I went to work as the marketing director of a lumber company. Obviously, that's what one does. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was very thought out because... It was a lot of, you know, like big lumberjacks that I already knew, like concealed carry permits, this and that. And so while they had no idea any of this was going on for my life, because who's going to hire me if I say, thanks so much for this job, just a heads up, there's a man with a mental health diagnosis who thinks we're married and wants to murder me. No one's going to hire you, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And that's you know, so that's the ticket to get the job. <laughs> Same with housing, anything like we all know that experience of just like, well, what do I do? Like, I, I just have to like hide this and keep this so quiet. So I was working at that lumber company and eventually I did have to tell my employer and he is the like, you know, as I told people quietly over the years about it, but I mostly kept it out of my community. I'd be met with a lot of like, oh, you're overreacting. Oh, this isn't a big deal. It's just stalking. Like. Get over it. You should be flattered somebody likes you. Just really, you know, really problematic, right? But eventually I would have to tell my boss, this big guy from New Zealand, this tough lumberjack who'd sailed over, like literally shipwrecked on Port Townsend, like not the person you think would respond with like absolute empathy and kindness, but you never know who someone is. And he did. And he was just like, Anna, we've got you. You are part of our family. You're safe with us. And even now, years later, I think it was his last year, he emailed me and he's like, hey, there's this woman that's a customer of ours that's being stalked by somebody. Could you speak with her? And I just like, you never know the heroes, right? Um, so I was continuing to work there. And eventually I had some time away from Port Townsend. Uh, I'm from Ohio originally, which I hear that we have in common. Where are you from? So I'm from Delaware, Ohio. Delaware. All right. I'm from Mansfield. Not that far away. And also, you you have this parallel with Lenora, and like you both own art galleries. So, is what is it? What is it with art galleries and, and these people? I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> but yeah, we've got the gallery thing. And as you're about to hear, like our fathers passed away around the same time. Um, our birthdays are within a couple days of each other. We both have tiny dogs. We just realized our moms have the same first name. <laughs> like it's really bizarre. <laughs> Oh, wow. So here we very, are. Like, this is very weird. It's so <laughs> weird. So here we are, like the, like two of the most outspoken, like stalking survivor activists and have like shockingly similar stories. Um, we're hoping to do a presentation together and I want it to start with literally just like, I have a tiny dog. I have a tiny dog because we have shockingly similar stories with very different results. Right. Yeah. Like just very different results. So. Yeah, so one of the things that I said we have in common is both of our fathers passed away, and and that's what I went back to Ohio for was my father was diagnosed with cancer, and we knew it was going to be a, a quick battle, and so I went home to help my mom, um, 
And really during that time of painful, traumatic loss of that, um, because I was fortunate to have a really good dad, and watching that happen, I also was the family chef, the family errand runner, these different things. And so suddenly I found myself going to the grocery store and not being on edge the entire time and not being completely freaked out and being able to shop with ease. Or my parents had a house out in the country and I would walk their trails at night alone. And I started to realize I hadn't done that in years. Or go into town, park my car, walk two blocks, meet a friend for food. So these very simple things that seem so easy to do kind of just like hit me over the head of how I hadn't done them and how absolutely drawn away my life had become. And so really, as my father passed away, I went back to Washington with this knowledge that if I was ever going to find safety, I was going to have to leave, which really sucked because I love that community so much. Um, that's all over my book of just like how much I love that community. And I'm still very, very connected to it. Uh, but sometimes you have to make that choice. And so I did make that difficult choice and through a series of other things, ended up here in Vermont and thought, okay, I'm safe. I'll disappear here. We're good. And I mean, I was for a little bit, but I went back to Washington for a quick trip and we assume that he must have seen me somewhere, but Jeffrey began to message me directly again, all of these very, you know, perverse, threatening things. And at that point, it was like, well, shit, this is never going to end. Like, this is never going to end till either I'm dead or he is. And it was a very dark time. I was very much suicidal during that time and just didn't, because I just was like, what do I do? And they did begin to build a case out in Washington, but the original prosecutor decided not to prosecute. There's like a lot of legal stuff in here that I'm not going to get into because it gets real heady and confusing real fast. Um, but I just kept filing report after report after report of all the messages. And I'm here in Vermont and nobody really knows anything about me or who I am. It's a very rural community. I went back to uh, waitressing to make ends meet which I think in a lot of ways saved my life because it was how I started to meet people. And we all know, especially before the pandemic, like you could be so sick and you would still have to go show up for your shift, right? And so even though I was in such this dark place of depression, I'm like, well, got to go serve tables, better get to work. And, and it allowed me to start to meet people. Uh, eventually, as I'm filing all these reports, the police in Port Townsend did an IP address search to see where Jeffrey was sending these messages from. And it was discovered he was still in Washington, but he was the next county over from Port Townsend. He was in a county called Clallam County. And I really thought at that point, well, these people don't know me. They don't know who Jeffrey is. Like, nothing's ever going to happen. Like, I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. And I don't know if I can. But along came this amazing prosecutor who had heard of Jeffrey before, and they reached out to me, and that was in 2017, and they started to build this case, and this prosecutor and the victim witness coordinator and the detective, like, really <clears throat> just educated me along the way, and they really made me feel like, finally, like, that I wasn't just the faceless victim, 
that I had a place at the table with them. And it really changed everything. It was like, okay, I can go the distance. Because we wouldn't go to trial until 2019. And there were so many things that were happening around that. And during that is when I started to really shift my career over to the victim service world and initially started my business thinking just as a way to give back like so many people do. And initially started my business thinking I would do graphic design for victim service agencies. So trauma-informed graphic design, which is a interesting, really important thing as we know. <laughs> like how we can visually take in these things when we're in that place of heightened trauma and fear is super important. But then somebody one day asked me to speak. And as I like to say, I never shut up since. <laughs> and, and all of that really started to open up my world too. And everything I'd kept in such secrecy and silence, I suddenly wasn't as silent anymore. And as one of my friends said, the more who know, the safer you are. And I fully believe that. So we would go to trial in 2019, that August, uh, and one of the things I had to prepare for was that Jeffrey would be defending himself, which wasn't something I was real looking forward to at all. Definitely didn't want that to happen, but we all know that legally that can happen. Like we've seen that time and time again. So I had to really prepare on so many levels. I worked with an advocate here in Vermont because, you know, there was no going into the courtroom beforehand. There was no being able to do all that prep. All of that was done over the phone. And I went in and testified for a day and a half. And it was 17 levels of hell. Like I just went away from my body and got through it. And, you know, every time I tried to open my mouth, it felt like Jeffrey would object. And then eventually, like he got to cross examine me. Um, and that was, you know, I think it's, so many times stalkers and people who are abusers use the criminal justice system to be able to talk to their victims, right? It's like if we have those protection orders, if they take us to court, and he did that in Washington as well before I moved, that's how they get to see us and speak to us legally. And this just felt like such an example of that. And But I made it through, and I had learned how to not even look at him how to not do anything. And it was really as he was crossing, examining me, he started to ask me a very specific line of questioning about like my, what I was doing in 2008, 2009. And that's before I had my art gallery. And all of us that were in attendance, myself, including as I'm happy to answer the question, it was then that all of us realized that he'd actually been watching me since for that long. So years before I even knew it, and I just like I came out with like just this steeled rage of clarity, which is like I'm not giving him anything. And we got through it. And as I said, he was found guilty of cyber felony cyber stalking and aggravated felony stalking. They brought in a few of his other victims to get that aggravated on there. And they each testified for about 30 minutes. And I'm so grateful that they did because this really was. Not only, you know, my sentence to freedom, this was sentenced to freedom for a lot of people because uh, over the years as he'd kind of he'd move from doing that stalking for short spurts to really fixating and sticking with those people he was stalking. And, you know, we'll never know how many there are truly, uh, you know, but I think one of the things that has always really resonated with me as I look back, the original judge for my case has since retired and her and I have become friends and 
you know, she called me up after the trial and we were talking and, and she was just like, you know, Anna, it's not a matter of if he's going to kill. It's a matter of when. And she's like, and you and the others should not be alive. And I really just credit, you know, like I said, being if I was different, if anything was different about me, would we have gotten that result? And also if it had been a different law enforcement that first day or different judges on the bench, because I hear person after person email me, I didn't get the protection order. The judge said it wasn't that big of a deal. I hear that all the time. And so I really look back and go, every single person from prosecutor to advocate to whoever it was really, really worked to protect myself and to have such a place of just gratitude for that. Were there mistakes? Of course, 100%. Have there been a few bad apples along the way? 100%. And I talk about that like in my book and I talk about that in my trainings, but I also try and really highlight on the good because there were so many good people. So now that's what I do is I really have just turned that since 2019 into the activism I'm doing and, you know, collaborating with people like Lenora, with all the other agencies I told you about. I do a lot of stuff with Spark, which is our Stalking Prevention Resource Center. And just do what I can. So that's the abridged version. <laughs> as, I, as I now sit here like on my publication day, I'm like, well, it actually took 326 pages to tell the story. And even then I feel like I've left things out, right? Like our stories are so big as all, all three of us know. And so thank you for letting me share the bits that I did. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This concludes part one of our two-part episode with Anna Nassett. Can't wait for part two? Please subscribe to the Survivor Squad Patreon to receive exclusive early access to all episodes. On that note, Survivors, I'm Tara Newell. And I'm Collier Landry. And this is the Survivor Squad Podcast. We'll see you guys. Bye. The Survivor Squad Podcast is made possible by support from listeners just like you. Please subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please consider supporting this program by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Survivor Squad.